Collective Conversations, the podcast that explores the intersection of social health, community, and connection for mental wellness. We're your hosts, Chris Henson. And I'm Mackenzie Fox. We're therapists with The Collective, a treatment center based on social health located in Nashville, Tennessee. In each episode of Collective Conversations, we'll be talking to experts, influencers, and everyday people who are making a difference in the world of social health. We'll dive into topics like loneliness, building community, and the power of vulnerability. How are you, Chris? I'm great. I got my first pedicure yesterday. So really? my, my toes are feeling really nice and, and they look a, a lovely pink color. Making some beef jerky wherever you're here at my house right now. Just been a lovely Sunday. How are you? I'm good. Welcome to the world of pedicures. This is like a new regiment for my self-care routine. I had no idea how much I would. They even had a massage chair. Oh, yeah. uh, game changer. It was, I felt so peaceful and now my feet feel so nice. You're getting ready for Bonnaroo? Yes. Can't wait to. I'm going to put them through a lot, my feet specifically. (laughs) Who are you most excited to see at Bonnaroo? I don't really know. This is my 11th year going. So it's just at this point, it's just a thing I do. Um, I love going, but uh, I think definitely Pixies, 3 Six Mafia, Volpec would be really cool, and um, Knocked Loose are some of the big ones I want to see. Plus Cheryl Crow. That'd be really nice. She fits so well in that lineup. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I saw Cheryl Crow probably like 11 years ago. Dude. Cheryl Crow puts on a show. I'm excited. I'm excited to just sit underneath a tree and listen about the first cut being the deepest. <laughs> it, it really is. And soaking up the sun. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it'll be better than what I heard the Shania Twain concert was. Oh, I hadn't heard anything about it. Yeah, apparently it was not that great. It was kind of chaotic. Oh. Shania Twain, for those listening, played a show in Nashville on Wednesday. And of course she's recovering from vocal surgery. But like still like just the whole, she had like dancers that were doing like strip teases on the stage and it's very interesting. Sounds like she's maybe trying to reinvent herself. She's been doing this for a while. <laughs> um, anyway. So I wanted to ask you, Mackenzie, when you feel lonely, how do you know? How do I know? What does it feel like for you? How do you know like, okay, I'm feeling this sense of loneliness? Damn, Chris, I didn't know today was going to be a therapy episode. Uh, (laughs) How do I know? I feel like when I am lonely, I tend to want to go further into like isolation. Like if I'm feeling alone already or if I'm feeling lonely already, I tend to just want to like be by myself. Like I feel like I, yeah, go a little bit further in. Like you want to further feed it? Yeah. It feels like, okay, this is already kind of a hit of despair. Not that intense all the time, but so like, let me just kind of stay in a little bit more. Yeah. That's the tricky thing about loneliness because like I relate to that a lot because knowing that maybe what I'm doing is not helping me feel less lonely, but also the loneliness feeds off of that. And so furthering by just removing myself or isolating myself, it's really interesting because it's like, two things at the same time. Yeah. I think it's interesting to think like when we're talking about what it means to be like lonely, I feel like we often equate it with being alone. And those things can be, I, I, I experience those things to be very different. There are a lot of times when I just want to be by myself. And that's okay. And I that's think. totally cool. Yeah. But there will be times when I'm like in a room full of people and still feel very lonely. And so how, how to navigate between those two is what I find interesting and also even in my adult life, I've been trying to understand. It's uh, interesting you bring up this topic, this introduction question, um, because that's what we wanted to talk about today was loneliness, specifically around teenagers and why it matters for teens. So one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about this today was the Surgeon General came out with a, a warning 
last week, like May 23rd, so I guess two weeks ago, um, talking about the dangers of social media with children. And so he basically says that the most common question that parents ask me is, is social media safe for my kids? The answer is that we don't have enough evidence to say it's safe. And in fact, there's a growing evidence that says social media use is associated with harm to young people's mental health. And so that, I think, brings up a lot for us, you and I, Chris, because we work with teenagers quite often. Yes. And so one of the big things that we are talking about with parents is, is social media good for my kids? And we'll talk a little bit about social media today, but I think there's this certain sort of equation with what is social media associated with for teenagers? And I think loneliness comes up quite a bit and isolation. And so I'm curious for you, just like hearing that quote from from the Surgeon General, what are your sort of thoughts about that? Well, I'm, I'm not surprised. And I'm trying to think back to when I first had a social media platform. I was part of a website with Facebook. 16 years old. Yeah. That was about 17 years ago. I don't think it's been around long enough for there to be longitudinal studies on what it's doing and how it affects, um, especially teens during, during their formative years of engaging primarily through that, as well as access to so many different avenues of information, as well as influences for developing their self-concept. Yeah, I think talking about that, my first experience with social media was MySpace. Um, I felt like a... Oh, mine was MySpace first, actually. Yeah. yeah. Right. I felt like an expert at like coding because I would get in there with like, how do I make people listen to music when they come to my page and they can't turn it off? Like... <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Or do you remember like having to rank your like top eight friends? Yes, except mine was between a top 25 and a top 50 <laughs> because I wanted, I didn't want anybody to feel like they weren't valued. <laughs> that so tracks for you. I'm glad to see that that hasn't changed about you at ever, like at any point in your life. <laughs> I'm thankful that one of my friends went into my MySpace and completely ruined all the code and everything. And I don't use it anymore because I probably might still be using it. Really? Be yeah. Or at least I would have used it a lot longer than I needed to. Totally. I got hacked, quote unquote. <laughs> <laughs> I would hands down cringe if I had to see my MySpace page. I tried to get back into it the other day just to find pictures. Um, they're all gone because they, they moved everything off the server a couple of years ago. And if you didn't get to it, you lost it all. Oh, well, I'm glad it's gone. I wanted to see my prom pics. <laughs> I have those on Facebook still. I have been using Facebook, though, for a really long time, like since it started. Yeah. Like when you had to have a college email address, just like set mm -hmm. up an account, right? Um, but yeah, so like you and I, we're both millennials. We're in our like mid-30s. So we have been around since the beginning of social media, but this generation below us, the Gen Zers, they have always existed. It's all they know. It's all they know. And so to put that into perspective for people that are listening, the first iPhone comes out in 2007. 2010, we get our first iPad. 2011 is Facebook Messenger, Instagram. And then by 2012, smartphones have become a household occurrence. So ownership was taking place in more than 50% of U.S. homes at that time in 2012. Wow. Right? And so studies released in 2018 showed a dramatic incline in reports of lonely teens starting in 2012. I'm a numbers girl. You know me. I love my research. So before 2012, what we were finding is that kids like younger teenagers, adolescents were either showing no increase in mental health struggles or in some areas, a decline, right? Like 
we weren't seeing those numbers be as intense. And then there's something that happens in that 2012 area, likely the rise of social media, influence with technology, everything like that. Yeah. That has really sent an uptick in teenagers and their like feelings of loneliness. I feel like then by then, like it wasn't some new revolutionary thing. Social media wasn't like it was normalized. And and if you don't have your phone, by then everybody had a phone. Everybody has a phone now all the yeah. time, even very young kids. And I don't know if, if anybody can relate to this, but when I don't have my phone, I feel like there's like something missing, almost like a phantom phone or phantom limb. Yeah. Ooh, have you ever had to go like an extended period of time without your phone? I can't recall. I do try to, I'm doing this new thing. I've been doing it for a week now where I turn it off at night or I even sleep with it outside of my room. I just like have an alarm set so I don't wake up and scroll for hours. But it's definitely been a challenge. And I can't think of a time that I haven't had consistent access to my phone. Can you? Consistent access. The only time I can think of is I did a training. Um, I guess it's been about two years ago now and I was there for like four or five days and they wouldn't take your phone away but they really encouraged you to to not use it and so there was probably two days that I went without checking my phone and it was hard for like the first like maybe 12 hours but afterwards it felt so nice I was like oh cool I just have to like I don't think I could exist like that in everyday life right but to be out we were you know on a farm and you know didn't really have to go anywhere. There was nobody looking for me, right? And so to just walk and and be able to arrive someplace without texting my friends being like, what time are you going to get there? You know, what, like, uh, what are you wearing? What are you going to do? Like, all of the connection beforehand, it was so nice. I was like, oh, cool. Dinner's at six. I'm just going to show up at six. And see what happens. And see what happens. I truly feel like it's a de- detoxing process. Like you said, like, the first 12 hours was really difficult. Yeah. You're are cutting off the machine that's providing this consistent uh, supply of dopamine. Yeah. Well, and to think like you and I as therapists, if we're seeing clients in a day, we go kind of extended amounts of time without. That's really nice. Looking at our phones, right? Because we're with clients and stuff. And I may check that like in between, but it is really nice. Like I find that the more I get disconnected from my phone, probably the less isolated that I feel which I think is probably counterintuitive to what you might assume would be the case. There's a bit of irony there. Right. So we're looking at our teenagers now that are, you know, in middle school and high school, and they've never really existed in a time without a cell phone. Which is really wild to imagine. Yeah. My niece is 10, and she just got her first phone. And to even watch her, like, have her phone is bizarre, because I'm like, who are you? who are you even texting? <laughs> like, like, who are you talking to? Like, what are you doing with that? But for her, she's like, we were leaving the house the other day and she's like, I need to make sure I have my phone. I'm like, what? Why? <laughs> what are you? My internet friends need to know where I am right. and what I'm doing. Right? I'm like, no, you're only going, like, obviously her parents have like locks on it. So I'm like, I think you're going to be with the five people that you can text anyway. But it was just that second nature of like, have to bring it with me. Yeah. And so we're we're in this age now, okay? Like cell phones are around to stay. They can do so much more. Like my first phone, I could text. I feel like I'm about to say the back in my day, right? But when I when I had my first phone, I could text people. I could call them after 8 p.m. when the minutes were free. 
and I could play snake, right? <laughs> like, and now kids, like we can FaceTime, like I can talk to people on different continents and it's not a big deal, right? Like, I think I could send maybe 200 texts a month. Yeah. And I felt like a badass because I had the Mario Brothers theme song as like my like either text or, or ringtone. <laughs> but speaking of like phone usage and just connection, this is kind of why I've like tried to like manage it for myself is I, I told you this, but I, I haven't said this on the air. A couple weeks ago, I like counted up how many texts I sent in a day or receive in a day. It was 195. What is so interesting is I don't even know if that sounds like a lot or not. Like I don't either. But <laughs> when I look at the framing it from the 200, it was around 200, maybe 400, but still a minuscule amount per month at yeah. 16 years old. Right. Here I am at 33 and consistently using this piece of like this device to stay connected or feel like I'm connected to yeah. the greater world and my relationships. Yeah. And so one of the big things that I think we have a lot with our, um, like when we're working with particularly our parents that we, you know, that come through the collective, they're always talking to us about like kids and their cell phones. Like, what do I do? It feels like sort of a damned if I do, damned if I don't, right? Like if I take it away, well, then that takes away my connection from them if they're outside of the house. Also, I don't want to take away like their connection with their friends. However, they're using it. Even if a child isn't using it in like um, an inappropriate way, right? Like they're not sneaking messages on like Snapchat or, you know, whatever. There's still this dependence on it. So that is setting the scene for kids struggle, teenagers struggle with mental health. So that research comes out in 2018, right? That's not that many years ago. And then in 2020, the pandemic happens. March of 2020 shutdowns uh, or lockdowns start occurring. So now we have kids who are even more isolated. Schools are closing down. People are going to virtual, homeschool, whatever, right? In 2020, our research from 2021 says that emergency room visits for suicide attempts rose 51% for adolescent girls in 2020 as compared to that same time period in 2019. Wow. Interestingly enough, like just as an aside, the figure rose for boys just 4%. Not just 4%. Obviously, any increase is horrific. But like to think about the comparison between 51% for adolescent girls, 4% for for teen boys. What do you make up about that? Yeah, like that's 47% different, if my math is correct. The only thing I can think of is growing up a cis male, my experience was not really rooted in my identity being based on how other people look at me. It was more about how I interact, but like what I look like or body image standards. And I think about when I first had social media, like Facebook specifically, the likes. I loved getting likes and I loved having my little diary moments on statuses. Back when you used to say Chris Henson is, <laughs> I'd say like the first name yeah. or whatever. And then is, um, and I got this sense of validation, like, okay, people like what I'm seeing. This is, this makes me feel good. This informs me of who I am. And so I can only imagine, uh, young girls are being inundated with all these messages of what it means to be beautiful and what it means to look a certain way or what body sizes are acceptable and what are not acceptable. And there's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Like your experience, what was that like? In the pandemic, especially so growing up for me. I have always been in like a plus size body. And I mean, I think that's something that I've talked about pretty frequently 
on other podcasts or just, you know, in presentations in my professional world. But growing up in a plus size body, I think being in high school was brutal, right? Not only was I larger than a lot of my friends, almost, I would say predominantly all of my friends. I was also like a weird kid. And I'm going to put that in loving quotes, right? Because I love my weirdo kids. But like, I was a weird kid. I was, you know, into like, punk and metal and more <laughs> like fishnets and stuff. Right. Um, and so being like a teen for me in that age, it was so important to have my like ears around me. But I also feel like we weren't, I wasn't being inundated. Like there were times that I could leave school and truly leave school. Right. Like nobody. It's a really good way to put that. Right. Like nobody was following me home if I didn't want them to. But now kids are never disconnected from their peers. So you might be leaving bullying at school, but you're still like accessible to people. Yeah. And then we add a pandemic on top of that and it emboldens this dependency, I think, on these devices to stay connected. Yeah. And from that 24-7 access to all of these different quote-unquote social norms and you have a, a teen who's trying to figure out who they are and how they operate in this world and where they fit in. And what it all means to them. And then you have all these messages being sent to them from people they are either peers or even people just on the internet. Yeah. The internet can be a very brutal place. Unforgiving because of that anonymity, I think. And that I think everything is permanent, right? Yes, like, that too. Um, you know, we were just talking about being thankful that, <laughs> that whatever was on MySpace is gone now, right? Because I'm like, wow, that was probably some really cringe. For the best. For the best. For cringe stuff with me, right? But for teenagers now, they you know, we know you and I working with them often and just knowing about how teenagers are, they're impulsive innately. Yeah. Like that's just part of being a teenager, but you're making these impulsive decisions on the internet that are staying around forever and can be accessible to anyone basically and at leveraged. any time and leveraged. Right. And so I think that further drives the disconnection because it is easy. I think it's easy to cut people off, right? Like, if I don't want to talk to whoever because they, you know, upset me at school, I can block them instead of having to face whatever, like whatever the consequences might be or to have like communication, right? Like I think there's something that is really important about when you're in a fight with a friend, having to work through the communication piece to rebound. But I think the, the way that we do connection now virtually makes it really easy to just cut someone off. It's truly two worlds, the virtual world and the real world or the tangible world. And I wonder if they need to stay separate because trying to integrate them is, seems like it's very difficult and the rules are not the same in both places. Totally. But then at the same coin, right? Like, and I think that this is the difficult piece, you know, for people that are listening right now, like, I think the difficult part of that is there has been so much helpfulness and connection yeah. though. In media and, like, technology as well, right? Like, like, I don't hate social media. Let me make that very clear. <laughs> right? But, you know, we and I've been at The Collective since we opened, and we opened in January of 2020. And so when we did that, it was like, wow, we're going to open this program about social connection and, like, social health and all of this. And then three months in, like, well, the entire world is shutting down, Right. We're like, okay, well, that, um, what do we do, right? And so being, having the ability to use platforms like Zoom or FaceTime or whatever, not only helped us stay in business because we could still connect with clients, 
who needed it in that moment, right? Depression and anxiety rates obviously rose for teenagers. They rose for everyone, right? So having that ability too was also very helpful. Yeah, I mean, my experience, I have a large group of friends that I've known for a very long time and we're all gamers, but I'm over here playing on a console and they're during the pandemic playing on their computers using the Discord um, server to communicate, which is, I'm not familiar with it. It's very basically um, an online platform that people can can have a, their own communities with their own rules and share whatever they want and also do voice chat and video chat. And they're all spending all this time together and I'm not able to leave my house and or see people because very much in the very beginning of the pandemic. So I built a computer to be able to join yeah. them. Yeah. And that has been our way of connecting and we still do that daily. And that helped me feel like I had my sense of my community. Yeah. Or even thinking like, you know, for me, there were parts of, especially the early pandemic that I feel like I felt more connected to my social support to my, my friend yeah. group than ever before, because I think you had to make a concerted effort, right? Um, every Friday night, me and about seven of my friends were on Zoom, just chatting. And we lived on all, like, all of us at the time lived in different parts of the country and stuff. And so like, we were all variously like, like in different stages of our life too, but like being able to know that, okay, cool. Every Friday we're all going to do like, we're all going to cook dinner and then we're all going to sit down in front of a computer screen and talk for a couple hours. And those might be the only people that I see outside of the person that I was living with at the time. That was what I had to have in those early like times of the pandemic, right? I think, but that happened for you and I as adults, right? We yeah. were well into adulthood by then. And then you have these teenagers, especially like those kids that were like 10, 11, 12 in the early parts of the pandemic lost, I think, the ability to be in a normal sort of middle school. Yeah. Era. And that has set them up for some real like, social delays you remove them from their friends in a, in a tangible environment and anybody has ever tried to i'm doing therapy on zoom with teens is, is honestly very painful <laughs> so trying i can't imagine going to, to attending school yeah having to pay attention but you're not getting you're not getting that socialization piece like going to the lunchroom and just being able to hang out with your your peers in between classes or meeting in the hallway and learning how to interact how to have conflict, how to manage conflict, things like that. Like simple things on the surface are simple, but I think are really, in order to do them, and I think in a healthy way, it's built up over the years. Yeah. As skill. And Social this skills. is not being taught through real life experience by these kids who have gone through the pandemic and then have this extreme now dependency, it seems like, on continuing to interact in a virtual space. Right. And if we're talking about loneliness and disconnection and social isolation, I think one of the other difficult things, especially early pandemic, was we didn't know it when it was going to end, mm -mm. right? And that was difficult for me as a 30-year-old. I'm like, are you serious? Like, oh, we're still doing this? Like, I'm graduating from my master's virtually, right? Which, in the grand scheme of things, not a big deal for me. I'm, You know, like, I could conceptualize why we had to do what we had to do. But I think for teens and preteens at that time, that's a hard concept to, to grasp. And I, I, can't, I can just remember in those moments being like, wow, I, I felt so much sadness 
for like high school seniors that didn't get to have prom or graduate in a normal way, right? Like just those 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 pivotal moments that we look back on as adults. Yeah. We were talking about prom pictures earlier. Yeah. Right. And so there was there's this like generation now of teenagers and preteens who like didn't and really early adults that didn't get to experience a lot of pivotal moments in their childhood that I think can further disconnection from others because things had to be done so differently. I'm curious for you, because you were a therapist like in the early parts of the pandemic too, right? Like right when it started. Right when it started. What was that experience like for you as far as like being a therapist in that time frame? It was, I mean, interesting is the only word I can think of because I like you didn't know what to expect. I'm just getting into the field. I'm figuring out myself outside of grad school. And then I'm also navigating how to have connection and how to maintain that. And also when we, when I started at the collective, we were doing zoom groups and one of my first groups I believe was on zoom. Yeah. And it was awkward. I didn't, I didn't, I'm, I'm here like not even sure of myself and as a clinician and my skills. And yeah. then here I am using a platform that I'm not familiar with. Like who, for me, I never heard of zoom before. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure the stock went way up on that. But yes. Yeah. It was, I'll never forget it. That's for sure. And I think it really just kind of shaped the clinician I am now in some, some ways. Yeah. Well, and I think this is not an experience that is um, exclusive to us as, as clinicians or providers, but thinking about the pivot that we had to take, which is I got taught how to be a therapist, right? Nobody taught me how to be a therapist virtually. Yeah. Which I like. So completely different. <laughs> completely different. Some people, I think, especially if you worked from home prior to or had the ability to work home uh, from home prior to the pandemic, like might not be as big of a of a jump. But like thinking about like especially healthcare providers during that time of like, OK, how do I how do I be a doctor virtually? How do I be a therapist virtually? I think the same thing can be said for teenagers. It's like, how do how do I go to school virtually? If this has never been my experience before and pay attention. Which, and it sounds like there's not a lot of accountability too. Right. You know, I, I worked some kids that they would just turn their, their cameras off and just go back to sleep or maybe even a little bit more extreme cases where you record a video of yourself looking like you're paying attention and you superimpose it. Just <laughs> honestly, probably what I would have done if, <laughs> if I was that age. That is, uh, I feel like that takes some work. All of this to kind of come back to this idea that now for the teenagers that are, you know, that are in high school now, especially, they have not really had the sense of normalcy that their parents have had ever. And I say yeah. normalcy that their parents had. And I don't mean that. I think every generation has kind of had to struggle with something, right? Maybe some more than others as I'm crying in millennial, right? But like, but you've got these teenagers who I think their parents, like the only experience that they have to compare it to is when they were teenagers, but things were so so different. How technology progressed so quickly starting in the early or the late 90s, right, has been insane. And it's something that like older generations just I don't think have something to compare it to. And so now you've got that and then a global pandemic. And now you have a bunch of like anxious teenagers struggling with mental health and not knowing how to talk to one another or to their friend or to their parents, you know. So my question with that is, we're talking about, you know, all the detriments and, and things that we're noticing and the struggles, but what about support and how can 
and teens and parents work together or even parents work in supporting their, their teens for struggling through these unprecedented times. Yeah. So when we talk about that, like, I think it's important to know, like, when we're talking about social isolation, what are some of the struggles that come up? Because we've been talking about a lot of them, but I would like to put some names to it, right? I think the first one is depression. Yeah. There is a strong relationship between feeling lonely and depression. Think about the last time that you felt, and this may be asking for some vulnerability from sure. you, Chris, but think about the last time that you felt depressed and what did what was that like? It feels heavy and it feels like it's never going to end and this is my existence. I can't remember a specific time and it feels like no one will understand and that sharing it is fruitless. Yeah, like nobody gets it. Yeah, how can they understand what I'm going through? I just don't want to share with people because they're going through their own thing. So let me just write it out. Right. And so our teens are experiencing that too. We're pushing or we're not pushing, but like being that socially isolated is pushing them further into social isolation. It's kind of like which came first, right? Depression or social isolation and loneliness. But like that is one of the big things when I'm talking to teenagers and they're talking about not um, spending time with their friends. One of the first things that I'm doing is, um, doing some assessments for depression. We also know that there's a correlation between feeling socially isolated or lonely and negative beliefs about self, suicidal thoughts, um, self-harm. All of these things we see when people people feel disconnected from, from their peers. I mean, all of these things really grow in the absence of light. And if you look at light in this instance as connection, support, being able to be seen, and understood and valued, all of that, these things feed off of being in the dark and grow and grow and grow, maybe sometimes feel unmanaged. Whenever you are, because um, I know you work a lot with teen boys, um, and this is me making a wild general statement about teen boys, okay. um, but I feel, I feel like a lot of times they have created some pretty great communities online. You know, you were talking about Discord earlier, and I know you um, are familiar with Hero Journey. Yeah, Hero Journey Club. Right? And so there's a lot of great things that are happening to help with mental health. But tell me a little bit about, like, the experience of, like, specifically around teen boys and, like, gaming online, having these, like, probably great online connections. But how does that affect the outside perspective? them and making connections in person? Well, I mean, my experience is I've worked with some teens that they feel like that is the only way that they can have friends and socialize. And so there's no point that what they shared me of trying outside of those walls of of their bedroom or wherever they may be hanging out in the virtual space. And when, if you have your only idea of community being from one place, there's no point it may seem like there's no point to to try in other areas, but how sustainable is that? Because they're not going to want to be taken away from that. I don't know if that exactly answers your question, but I think there's there's it can be healthy to have those kinds of communities, but also we have to remember to go outside and step in some grass sometimes <laughs> and put your phone down and yeah. take a breather and remind yourself that you're a human being. Yes, I feel like that did answer my question. And just thinking about the, like, I'm putting myself in those shoes for a second. And if I have built this online community, doing something that I really love, right? Like when I talk to, and it's not exclusively teen boys, but that's just primarily where I hear it, doing gaming and things like that. I think the idea of having to like step out and be seen is like you get to create this own persona. You get to be whoever you want to virtually. 
And so now I'm asking you to step away from the computer and let people like witness you. The shield. The shield. I mean, the anonymity piece. That's why people yeah. can say a lot of awful things on the internet because they're keyboard warriors, for lack of a better term. They're behind the keyboard and there's no repercussions. How do you like work with them to find it worth it? Mm, that's a good question. And the reason that I phrase it that way just for people listening is because like Chris and I or any therapist could be like, you should try this. Yeah. And I feel like, especially with teenagers, if I'm too directive, they're like, I will do anything but that. <laughs> um, but like, t you have to find like, someone has to be motivated for change, yeah. right? So like, how do we work them through if we can see a little bit more of the full picture, right? Which is like, yeah, this is great. And you also need this. How do you work with them? I mean, I think we start with just really trying to have them embody what it is to be a human being and working on like the somatic pieces of feeling it in your body and the mindfulness and, and breathing and then finding out how to searching for that sense of community, but in, in tangible, you can find groups of gamers and hang out in person and talk about the games Yeah. or go play some tabletop games or, or finding people that like the same interests as you in person. And then also having that space um, on discord or in the gaming community as well, virtually. Yeah. And I think accountability too, like it needs to have come from the parents as well who have certain times that you can, if we're looking just talking about gaming or being online, you can have online hours and then offline hours. It needs to be both. One thing that I see often in my practice when I'm working with teens is, uh, you know, anxiety. So we talked about depression being one of those, one of the links between mental health and, and social isolation. But anxiety is another big one that I see. I think because socialization takes practice that chronic loneliness can also lead or exacerbate like already existing anxiety, yeah, especially social anxiety. And so I see a lot of teens who like simply, especially if they went through the pandemic, do not have social skills in person, right? Like the, I will have um, clients sitting in my, office like talking to me about something pretty intense and then like pick up their phone and check it like midway through section like the session and I don't think that they're doing it to be like disrespectful or not because but it is like second nature they're not even aware they're not even aware let that me they tell do you one time I was on um Facebook on my computer scrolling and I'm just like doing whatever and I had my phone in my other hand <laughs> on Facebook as well <laughs> And then I realized, wait, what am I doing? Yeah. Yes. Like, and I think like that I think is related back to the anxiety piece too yeah. of like needing the connection. Like what happens if I am Feeling disconnected? The space. Yes. Um, I'm uncomfortable maybe. And this is a way like a coping, a coping method. Yeah. Honestly. It's a coping. So I can't sit with myself. Yeah. Without doing this. Right. Um, similarly, I have found myself at times like on my phone, have my laptop in front of me and also watching TV. Now, I don't know if that's more like ADHD or just like <laughs> not wanting to be lonely, right? Yeah. But like, yeah, this idea that like with the anxiety piece is that I can't sit by myself yeah, and just be. Did you, did you ever do, I know I did this and, and when I first started undergrad, I'd be walking on campus and I didn't want to make eye contact with yeah. because I was, I was nervous. So I would pull out my phone and pretend I'm texting sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. I don't like, and I would just be texting people like random things, mm -hmm. like somebody please have a conversation yeah. with me. I wouldn't do it as much with texting because I would absolutely fall or like, <laughs> like not look where I'm going, but I would do that with the phone a lot. Like 
I would just have my phone up to my ear, not even on conversations. So I wouldn't have to look at other people or engage. And I think, at least for me, I think there's an intense level of vulnerability when it comes to direct eye contact with someone. Mm-hmm. And if we look at, you know, stats, I don't have any on me, but just the way people socialize, there's a lot less eye contact than I feel like there used to be. Well, yeah, especially with a lot of things like how easily virtual connection is now. Think about it. If you are meeting with someone virtually, right? If I'm doing a session, if I'm, you know, having a chat with someone, whatever it is, I'm not looking at them in the eyes. Like I may be looking at their eyes, right? Look at the camera. But like, like, yeah, they're not looking at me either. Yeah. Right. So I think that that's always so interesting is that when you're with people, it helps the conversation but that is a really scary thing because then you know that person is like witnessing you. Completely. Right? You know, maybe there's an expectation of what this person wants from me. What, how do I, what, how can I give this person what they want? What are they thinking about? Am I talking too much? Am I talking too little? Really being in the head of the other person. And, and I think that's the anxious piece of trying to manage a conversation while also trying to play the tape forward of like what the person's going to say and, and what, what to say in response to that of, hypotheticals which once again i think is something that like you learn how to do in school usually and so here are these group of teens that are coming up through the system or like through the school right that missed out on some really crucial moments to learn how to socially interact and so of course they're coming in fearful and like socially anxious because they've didn't learn how to do it and the idea is that not that when you're with like your peer group that somebody is standing up and being like, this is how you talk and communicate. Right. (laughs) But that you get taught, like, these are the boundaries. These are the like more socially acceptable ways to communicate. Right. Like there's a lot of um, growth that happens amongst peers that I think is so pertinent to helping kids learn how to communicate. So we see depression. We see um, a lot. I see a lot of anxiety. And I think that's typically where I see it with my, I work a lot of teen girls. Um, And I think I see that a lot with my teen girl clients. And that's because there's like, I think there is this unspoken rule in um, high school, especially with teen girls and like cliques and like what it means to be socially involved, you know, and that becomes difficult if you're not able to interact and engage with others. And then the last one is substance use. So... I will be honest, I don't see a ton of substance use in my teens. This is what the statistics say. These are the three major like factors um, for when teens are feeling isolated. Um, I don't see a ton of substance use, but I think that is also because that's just not like my area of, of focus in a therapeutic concern. However, it is more chronic or it is uh, more prevalent with people who are dealing with chronic isolation or loneliness. Um, it's common really to like numb painful feelings with substances, whether that's alcohol, whether that's drug use. And then loneliness is a recognized risk factor in all stages of alcoholism. Um, it can have indirect effects on substance use due to like increased stress. I think in relation to that, one thing that I do see a lot is with eating disorders and disordered eating. In teenagers, eating disorders are a disorder of loneliness. Like, I will say that forever because it breeds so much in silence and, and being by yourself. Do you have any experience working with like teens and like drug use? Not a lot, but I think the thing that came to my mind is when it comes to reintegrating back into 
real life and relying on substances to we look at alcohol liquid courage is what it can often be referred to is to to deal with that anxiousness of how to interact with another human being yeah and to make it quote unquote easier and combine that with the idea that that a lot of kids at this age in this age range are experimenting anyway yeah. right like comes with it yeah kind of comes with it like I don't want to say it's a normal part of being a teenager, but like maybe that it kind of is, right? Is that there is some experimenting with substances anyway. But I think when you've got some pre-existing concerns going on, like mental health stuff, it is really like pertinent that we're having the conversations about substance use with your teens, especially if they're experiencing feelings of loneliness or social social isolation. One of the big questions that I think we got asked quite often in preparing for this episode was how can I help? How can I help my, my kid that's struggling? How can I help my friends, right? What are some things that you might suggest when you're talking about helping teens combat loneliness or social isolation? It's really hard, <laughs> but I think the big, big piece that everything else can revolve around is opening up and sharing about what you're going through. With parents, letting your child have a space to learn about what it is to feel lonely versus being alone and managing that or not managing that. And for them to like, the question I asked you, how do you know that you feel lonely? So letting them figure that out because that's different for every human being and creating a space for them to explore that as well as supporting them and with some encouragement of reaching out and talking to your friends and maintaining these relationships but also letting them develop their own autonomy in that way. Yeah, so helping them for parents, really being able to communicate with your teen specifically around this, right? So like checking in on them, giving them like the space to sort of share with you with as much as they feel comfortable yeah. what's going on for them when it comes to being lonely. And I think sometimes the experience that I've had a lot with some of my teen clients is they're so afraid sometimes to tell their parents that they feel lonely or something because mom and dad are like, okay, well, let me fix this. And and sometimes all they need is just someone to like hear them and hold space and know that there probably isn't like a solution to the concern, right? Yeah. They just are having a big feeling and they need someone to help them hold it. One of my favorite things to say to parents is uh, fix it or feel it. Asking your child, is this a fix it or feel it moment? Do you need me to do something as your parent? with my resources and, and my experience of, of living longer and be able to do something for you? Or do you just need a place to just feel it? Because sometimes things just suck and sometimes things are hard and that's okay. And that's okay. I think that's another piece of like building resilience is like sometimes your kids are going to feel really uncomfortable feelings. And the best thing that you can do for them as a parent is to like support them in it, but like let them move through it. So communicate. I also say like helping them build or practice skills. Communication, I think is something that we don't often, I mean, I feel like you and I talk about because we're therapists, but like in the general public, we don't talk a lot about the skills of communicating, right? Teaching someone how to assertively communicate their needs, how to set boundaries and respect boundaries from others. Like this isn't something that I think is ever taught just outright. Cool, today we're going to talk about this thing, right? I think a lot of times it happens in real time within their communities, right? Like I think um, 
other peers are the best, is the biggest helper in helping teens learn how to communicate and where the boundaries are. Yeah, right. Like, I think about when I was a teen, like, and I, I've said some, I have ADHD, so I've, impulsivity was a really big struggle for me. And I would say things like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Yeah. And now I'm dealing with the repercussions of that and having to learn how this affected another person. And so when we have teens that um, have missed out on some of those crucial times, helping them like just outright build a skill around those things is pertinent. And then I think the, the third thing, so communicate, build and practice those skills. The third thing is to seek outside help. So for you as a parent who might be listening, it is a thousand percent okay to go to a therapist or a doctor, like your pediatrician, whoever your sort of like first point of contact is and say, I don't know how to help, right? Um, you are a parent, you're the expert of your child, but you don't have to be the expert of mental health, right? And so bringing in a professional who can assist in that regard, I think can be super um, impactful. And it just really creates an avenue for having that teen be supported from not just their parent, but also professional. So they can learn a lot of things about themselves and, and therapy and the beautiful space that, that is and take that home and apply it to their life, finding a way to work it into the system of how they can help themselves so they can build these skills so when they become an adult, they can manage the hard times. So we got a couple questions from some listeners. I uh, want to read two of them and then you can kind of like, you and I can talk about them a little bit. The first one, um, they say, my teen struggles with not wanting to hang out with friends but then says they feel sad to be alone. I don't know when to push them to be social. What are your thoughts about that? Kind of what I said earlier about, you know, encouraging them compassionately to, to hang out with friends, but also letting them kind of start to figure out what do they need when they feel sad and, and, and they want to be alone and how can they manage that? And if it's not friends, can they get it met in other ways? Yeah. I think this is, um, you and I were talking about this kind of before we started recording today, but also knowing your kid, right? Like once again, you're the expert on your child. And so letting the, like sort of knowing a little bit about them, right? What are they missing out on, right? So if my teen is struggling with not wanting to hang out with friends, what are their friends going and doing? Um, I told a story about how my, my dad, when I was in high school, always wanted me to go to like the football games on Friday nights. Because he thought, like, that's what he did as a ch child, and he loved it, and, like, you know, that was his version of normal. But I was, like, a weird kid who the last thing I wanted to do was go to a football game, right? That didn't mean that necessarily I was lonely, but it did mean that sometimes I was alone on a Friday night, bummed because my friends were at a football game, right? Yeah. Um, and so figuring out for you, like, when is it appropriate to, like, kind of let them sit in what is uncomfortable feelings, but still normal versus like, okay, when is this becoming like an issue? I think it kind of goes to the communication piece and uh, a metaphor I like to always use when with parents and letting their child explore and learn about themselves and become a person. I mean, they are a person, but you know, <laughs> yeah. more growing into themselves is to create a room that has walls made of rubber instead of walls that are rigid and made of brick so they can bounce around in a place that is safe and maybe make some mistakes, fall on their face, but not in a way that's going to, you know, be life altering consequences, but just you have to make mistakes and you have to learn these things and 
creating a space as a parent for them to be able to explore that and figure it out for themselves. Yeah. Yes. I think that is so, I think that is really powerful is like you as the parent, not having to be the fixer of everything, but that like being able to, for you not being able to like have to fix everything for your child, but being able to, to like help them sit with the discomfort if that's what they need, because it might be right. Like that builds resilience. And at the same time, I think recognizing as a parent where your discomfort's coming from, if you see your child in pain and if you're not able to figure it out, maybe it's, it's okay to, it's, it is okay. It's not maybe, yeah. it's okay to get support for that too and talk to a professional. Yes. There's another question I wanted to ask you. Someone said, my kid doesn't have access to a phone or social media and blames their loneliness on that. How would you suggest addressing that? Okay. I love this one because I, I feel like my biggest thing when I'm working with parents about their kids really in any regard, is boundaries, 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 right? You get to be the rule maker in your house. So if you say that there's no phone or social media in your house, cool, right? There is going to be pushback, obviously, from kids because most of their friends probably have phones um, or social media. But I think you get to decide what happens in your house, helping them come up with creative solutions on the, like, on the, the other end of that is going to be really important. So if you don't want them to have a phone, questioning why, right? Is it because they have been irresponsible with it beforehand? And so I can't trust them, which is totally valid and fair. Is it because that's a lot to manage? I think it's a lot to manage making sure that your kid is safe online, right? Yeah, I cannot imagine. (laughs) Me either. And so, like, if that's what it is, how can I help them find some other time to to make social connections. So am I taking them to meet up with friends? Is there, can they use my phone to text with friends when it's appropriate? Sometimes I will talk with teens and their parents about how do we work towards a goal, right? I think in the year 2023, and I'm going to say this with a caveat that I am not a parent, but I think sometimes it's maybe a little unreasonable to think that kids are going to go all the way to 18 with no cell phone, right? Unless they're like getting it taken away for punishment or something like that or consequences. But like, how can we work towards safety for you to be able to have that connection? Do we need to set up more, um, more like tech free zones in the house or that we have time that you can utilize that with a little bit more regulation, right? So while somebody is home and in the room with you. Or um, you can text your friends, but I'm going to read exactly what they say afterwards, right? All of those things are appropriate. And I think working with your teenager's therapist, as well as like talking to your teen about it. If you feel uncomfortable with them having a cell phone or having social media, let's talk about why, right? Is it because I'm fearful for like of how you'll interact or is it I'm fearful of what you might find? Both of those things are really valid. And I think just being able to decide like so that the kid knows, because I think when teens know things, it does help a little bit. Knowledge is power in this. They still probably won't like it. That's cool, right? But being able to give them the information, I think is beneficial. Teens, at least for me, like to feel like they have a say in the choices that are being made in their lives, even if they really don't. But just having that feeling of, you know what, I'm being told this and I get to have a little bit of a say and, and an input, 
that can go a long way. A thousand percent. This has been a great conversation, yeah, Chris. Yeah, honestly. You know, as we've talked through this, at certain points, I was like, God, this feels hopeless. But, but I think that that's a really valid feeling and something that probably parents or people that are interacting with teenagers experience quite often, right? Is like, oh my God, how do we even start to bridge this gap with like teens and feeling lonely and mental health and all of this, right? It is big. Um, And so I think if I have any final thoughts, it's certainly that I hope that your teenager has a person that is like their safe person, right? Like a therapist, whoever it is, right? Like a mentor, whatever. But I also hope for parents that like you don't have to carry this burden alone. And so whether it's you having your own therapist or mental health provider, whether you have a parent's group, community of your own, I think it's so important for you to also make sure that you're building your own community too. It really takes a village. It really does take a village. So if all of this feels overwhelming, I just want to acknowledge that like, yeah, that makes sense because it does. It feels really overwhelming sometimes. Yeah. And I think my final thought actually would be if you're a parent listening and you're feeling like this is so much, just know you're not alone. Probably some other people that I know there's other people that can relate and getting that support for your team, that support for yourself can really lighten the load and just know that you are doing your best. Thanks, Chris. You're the best. Thank you, Mackenzie. You're the best. (laughs) Thanks. Stop. (laughs) That's all today. Thank you guys for joining us on Collective Conversations. If you want to learn more, you can check out our website at mycollectivecare.com or on our Instagram at mycollectivecare. We'd also love to hear from you. So you can send us an email at hello at mycollectivecare.com or give us a call 615-208-3397. Yeah. And if you have any questions that you want us to answer on an upcoming episode, we're happy to do that. We'd love to hear from you all and, and any kind of feedback or anything you want to see us talk about in the future, let us know. 